Great to have Sam Storms with us here today. Uh, Sam has been with us on our podcast many times, and we always get good feedback, uh, Sam, whenever you're with us. Uh, Dr. Storms, you're an amazing writer, uh, the content you bring out. Uh, I was reading a little bit about you, and uh, I like this quote by Max Licato, who says, uh, you have the heart of a pastor and the skill of a scholar. That's a nice thing to say about you. It was very generous of Max to do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, well done, man. Uh, I'd like to talk to you today a little bit about uh, the Holy Spirit, his role in our life, the role in the church, and maybe some of the difficulties people have uh, in the church today, some of the those who are f- feeling like maybe the gifts have ceased for today. And so, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more uh, about that. So again, thanks for joining us, Sam. We're glad to have you with us here today. My pleasure. Um, so the uh, I want to go personal first, just talk a little bit about your life. Uh, have you always, ever since you've been a Christian, uh, had had a, a belief in the gifts of the Spirit and moving in the realm of the Spirit, or did that come to you later on in life? <laughs> no. The answer to the question is no, no, and yes, it did come later in life. <clears throat> um, yeah, I was raised Southern Baptist, uh, great Christian parents, Christian home. I uh, loved my upbringing, my tradition, but there wasn't much emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the circles in which I ran. Uh, the only talk about the spirit is when we talked about sanctification, which is important, obviously. The spirit without the spirit, we can't be sanctified. But there was no reference at all to the gifts of the spirit. And when I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which again, I so glad I wouldn't have changed that for anything in the world. I so appreciate the education I got there. But Dallas was not open to the reality of the gifts today. And so probably from I entered full-time ministry in kind of late 73, early 74. So it's been about 47 and a half years now. For the first 15 years, I was a committed cessationist. Did not believe that miraculous gifts of the Spirit continued beyond the time of the early church, maybe the end of the first century. At best, uh, you know, into the early years of the apostolic age. Um, So, I had always been a cessationist, and it wasn't until about 1987, 1988 that I began to really examine the Word of God and ask some serious questions about the arguments that I had been given uh, up until that time. So I was I was not only a committed cessationist, I was a cynical and hard-nosed critic of anything or anyone who tried to argue for the validity of these gifts. And I've I think I've sufficiently repented both privately and publicly for that. Um, and, uh, by God's grace, uh, I think I've, I think I've had my eyes opened. I know that other people think they're still closed, but I think I, I think I see the truth of scripture now. Yeah. Well, I think you've well made up for it in your writings and in your pastoral ministry. Um, what happened to you? Was it, um, more, uh, scholarly that you looked at certain scriptures or you read certain books or was it more experiential for you to change your way of thinking? It wasn't experiential. Um, it really was sparked in nineteen in the spring of nineteen eighty seven. I uh, I was pastoring in Ardmore, Oklahoma, south central part of the state, and I'd driven down to Dallas Seminary uh, primarily to go to Baylor Hospital, which was just a few blocks from the seminary, to visit a friend of mine who was there. And I happened to run into Jack Deer. Jack had been was a professor at Dallas teaching Hebrew and Old Testament. And Jack and I'd known each other well while we were in seminary together. And um, we began talking. I realized that Jack had just basically been told he was not going to be hired back. He was being fired after 12 years. So we began talking about why. And it was because of his um, embrace of the reality of these gifts 
and certain friendships that he had cultivated as a result of that. And um, I started giving him my arguments why I didn't think the gifts were operative today. And he, out of his unimaginably deep and complex education and wisdom, spoke back to me this very simple question. Where's that in the Bible? (laughs) I thought, well, that's pretty profound for an Old Testament professor. (laughs) And it just really knocked me back on my heels. Um, And I came to the realization that I had embraced a lot of arguments and just simply assumed they were correct because of the respect I had for those who gave them to me. And I thought, oh, well, I need to investigate scripture. So I really began to dig back into God's word. Jack helped me a lot. We were in constant communication. By then, he had moved out to Anaheim, California. Um, and I just began to examine those arguments. And I came to the conclusion that they just simply didn't hold up. There just simply wasn't any basis in scripture for the idea that gifts of a particular miraculous nature had ceased. So it was really just from studying and looking at the word of God that I came to that conclusion. Uh, certainly I had uh, uh, some profound supernatural experiences subsequent to that. I would had one back about 20 years earlier, but uh, it really didn't weigh heavily on my change of theological persu- position. It was primarily just looking at the text, asking questions. All right, Here's what I believe. Now, Sam, where's that in the Bible? And I couldn't find it. <laughs> mm. The um, the place my mind goes to when you think of cessationist would be the First Corinthians thirteen passage. Uh, 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 knowledge and things will will pass away. Uh, is that the primary argument that you held to, and others that were trying to convince you to stay uh, in in that school of thought, or are there other ones as well? If we just take a few minutes to talk about maybe th- that point of view. Sure. It was the primary passage, not the only one. Um, it's interesting. Um, now, almost all cessationists, there are just a few exceptions. Even most cessationists say we can't use that passage any longer. In fact, um, one of my very dear friends in life is Dr. Tom Schreiner, who teaches at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And Tom, has, is a, he calls himself a cautious cessationist. And he says that, in fact, the one text that would convince him to believe all the gifts are still operative until the second coming is 1 Corinthians 13. So there's been an ironic shift in that passage originally being used by many to deny the gifts. And now many are coming to recognize it supports their continuation because Paul clearly says that these gifts will continue until the perfect comes. And um, most now recognize that the perfect is that state of affairs brought about by the second coming of Jesus. Um, And Paul goes on to define it. It's when we will see face to face. We will uh, experience what we call the beatific vision. We'll know even as we are known. And virtually all are now agreed that this is a reference to the state of affairs in the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, this text is actually a strong argument for the continuation of all the gifts. And that was originally used as uh, saying that the gifts have ceased because the perfect was considered the word of God once the canon of scripture was put together. Uh, that And so that, they're not, that argument isn't really uh, being held up in scholarly realms much anymore. Are there other, uh, where do they hang their hat then? There aren't really, well, there are two other texts, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul talks about signs and wonders and the signs of an apostle. And unfortunately, Um, certain translations render that in such a way that you think Paul is identifying the signs of an apostle with signs and wonders. And so the argument is, well, if apostles 
no longer are on the scene, and the signs and wonders that they performed would likewise have disappeared. But that's not actually what the text says. Let me just say this. This is from the ESV. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And I think that's supported from the original Greek text. Paul is not identifying the signs of apostle with signs and wonders and miracles. He's saying that these miraculous things accompanied the signs of a true apostle, which I think Paul would say were um, my life of integrity, you Corinthians, converts, the fruit of my ministry, uh, the fact that I am persecuted and considered to be among the dregs of the earth, um, suffering for the sake of Christ. These are the signs of an apostle. And that was accompanied by, but are not identified with these miraculous deeds. And then Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 is often cited, even though I don't think that's what it's saying either. But honestly, the, um, um, the, the primary argument you hear from cessationists isn't based on any particular text of scripture. It's this idea that if so-called revelatory gifts like prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning of spirits, and so on, if these gifts are still operative, would that not undermine and compromise the integrity of scripture and the finality and sufficiency of the biblical canon? That's the primary argument. They feel like these gifts would be a threat to the sufficiency of the word of God. And here's the ironic twist to that. I actually think if you believe in the sufficiency of scripture, you have to believe in the ongoing validity of these gifts. Because the question has to be raised, where do we who believe in these gifts today get the idea? Do we just make it up? Did just, you know, somebody just concocted this idea on their own? No, we get it from scripture. In other words, the sufficiency of scripture means we believe that God's written word, I'm holding my Bible right now, will tell us everything we need to know or to do in order to live godly lives. And it will also warn us about any threats to living a godly life and any threats to the authority of the written word. So then we ask the question, what does the all-sufficient scripture tell us about these gifts? Earnestly desire them, especially that you may prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. So it's because I believe in the sufficiency of the word that I trust what it tells me is essential for life in the body of Christ. Furthermore, uh, everybody who affirms the sufficiency of scripture says that when I ask them this question, I say, do you believe that God's word warns us about those things that might be a threat to our confidence in God's word or our ability to live, to live a Christian life? And they say, well, of course. So all right, where in the Bible, just give me one verse, one syllable, one phrase, where spiritual gifts are ever viewed as a threat, as are, are ever viewed as somehow uh, having the capacity to undermine the authority of God's written word. It's God's written word, and because of its authority, that I believe in the ongoing operation of these gifts. So it's because I believe in the sufficiency of the word of God that I am a continuationist. So those are the primary um, arguments that cessationists would use, uh, none of which, in my opinion, can be substantiated from the word of God. I just don't see them in scripture. And that and, and that's important to say that's irrespective of whether you've ever experienced any of these gifts yourself. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are functional cessationists, 
theologically, they say, you know, you're right. The Bible doesn't teach these gifts have ceased, but I'm living and carrying on in ministry and in my Christian life as if they did. And I think that's a very dangerous position because that means that you're basically disobeying Paul's command. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So uh, it seems to me that if we're going to honor and submit ourselves to the authority of the all-sufficient word of God, we have to honor the commandments and the instruction it gives us concerning these gifts. That's a good point. They, the problem they might have with that would be, I think I understand what you're saying, would be if I were to give you a word today, Sam, like the, the Lord speaking to me, Sam, and he just told me to encourage you that, uh, you know, this thing is going to, God's going to do this new thing in your life. Mm-hmm. They would take that as I'm trying to make that equal uh, to the the canon of scripture. Sure. And so therefore they say that, that has to cease. But I, I think there's a difficulty there because they're not, differentiating that 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 my word of knowledge or my prophetic word I'm not trying to say that's equal to uh, the, the the canon of scripture I'm trying to say that, you know you need to discern this based on the scripture like examine the scripture to see if what I'm saying you know that's what Paul talked about Precisely. when you have a prophecy make sure there's other people there that are discerning the the accuracy of it and so it's they work in tandem not uh, you're not trying to compare like okay my my word, you know, and I think maybe some of our early days, I grew up in the Assemblies of God, you know, and uh, we used to, every time there was a, a prophetic word or pretty much anything that was the Lord sort of prompting somebody to say something, they would say, thus saith the Lord, you know, and, th- mm. and that kind of sort of maybe put it and maybe a slightly yeah, different level. It's, hard, it's not good. It's hard to say like, no, I don't really feel like I should marry, you know, Betty Lou over there because, you know, thus saith the Lord, that's uh you know, you need more than that. So, yeah, what we say here is anytime anybody has what they think is an impression or a word of knowledge or a prophetic utterance, our our ex, uh, exhortation is open your Bibles. See if it's true. Test it by the written word of God. If it isn't, reject it. So, again, here's the interesting thing. We do this all the time. Cessationists do this all the time with teaching. What do you do about a cessationist pastor who's preaching a text of Scripture and he misinterprets the text. That happens all the time. I've done that countless times as a pastor. Every pastor has done that. We are not infallible interpreters of God's word. And so I've communicated what was false. Well, we don't reject the gift of teaching because of that. So why do we make a special uh, exception for prophecy? Because some people miss it and uh, try to maybe use prophecy to manipulate others or to gain authority over them. That's no excuse to reject the gift itself. Rather, it is, an, it is a responsibility of all of us to test these things. That's why uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, undoubtedly there were people in the church at Thessalonica in the first century who probably experienced a little bit of what you just described. Somebody may have stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't come to pass. Or somebody may have uh, tried to use their alleged prophetic gift to gain power influence in the church, or they try to manipulate somebody or control their life. And Paul warns them, do not despise prophetic utterances. When you do that, you're quenching the spirit. So again, he doesn't mean we'll just gullibly accept everything that comes out of somebody's mouth. He says in the next verse, test everything, hold fast to what is good, reject what is bad. So the alternatives aren't uh, well, it's either a thus saith the Lord infallible word that I have to live by, or it's I have to believe um, or I have to reject prophecy altogether. We're not to be gullible. We're not to be overly critical. 
We are to be sane, reasonable, listen to the word, open the word of God, test it by scripture, test it by our own experience. After all, if a, if a, a prediction is given and doesn't come to pass, you missed it. But again, um, just because somebody misses a prophetic utterance doesn't make them a false prophet. False prophets in the New Testament are always unbelievers. Let me go back to the teaching example. Um, let's think for a moment. Let's, let's just assume for the sake of argument that continuationism is true. Does that mean I was a false teacher for 15 years preaching cessationism? I was misinterpreting the text, misapplying it in people's lives. So was I then a false teacher? No, I was a teacher who simply misunderstood and misapplied scripture. In the same way, a person who has the gift of prophecy can misinterpret and misapply a revelation that comes from the spirit. So I think if we, if we just kind of be somewhat more objective and fair about these gifts, we would understand that um, uh, we don't have to be live in fear of somebody undermining the authority of scripture uh, by claiming to have a prophecy. We certainly don't need to slide in their words, you know, after re revelation and include it in the canon. Um, so again, all is clear. Judge what is said, weigh, assess it, evaluate it, sift it, uh, test it by the word of God, test it by the principle of love. Does it, was it born of love or was it born out of self-promotion? Uh, submit it to the test of the community. What do the wise people, the elders of the church say about it? Stop saying, thus saith the Lord. Um, and when you've done that, you'll be on far stronger ground, far more stable a foundation on which to operate in the in the reality of these gifts. Yeah, that's powerful. I'm so glad you bring that truth to bear here today. The um, the other part of this, and then I want to switch gears. Not I don't want to spend all our time just talking about what cessationists believe, because uh, I'd rather talk a little bit more about what God can do through His gifts in the church today. But one last question: uh, Some cessationists seem to be like, okay, there are there are some gifts that are still in operation, but I seem to hear a little bit more about like the, the the office of the apostle and the prophet are the two that have ceased today because the apostle had to see Jesus firsthand, um, had to have signs and wonders working through their ministry. And the prophet was an Old Testament prophet who would be, you know, and you probably heard this before, I'm sure, like if your prophecy didn't come true, you were a false prophet, you, were, you should be killed. Um, and so mm -hmm. they're holding us to that standard today. Um, I'm assuming you don't take that line of thought, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm well, look, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when he talks about a person receiving a revelation from the Spirit and they prophesy, what does he say that we're to do? He says, judge it, test it, hold fast what is good, reject what is bad. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. Nowhere does he say, stone the prophet, you know, cast them out, excommunicate them. Nowhere do we see that in the New Covenant Scriptures. So to hold the New Covenant Church to the standard of the old covenant, I think is entirely invalid because uh, prophecy functions in a different way in the in, in the new covenant. Remember this, people sometimes forget this. They, they think of somebody who would prophesy as carrying apostolic authority and they can uh, uh, govern the church and dictate its direction. Remember this, Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, when the spirit is poured out, what did Peter say? He quoted Joel and he said, this is what Joel the prophet had said, that on your young men and your old men, your women, your young maidens, the spirit of God will come and they will experience dreams and visions and they will prophesy. So you've got young women, older women, old men, young men, all prophesying. 
you've got um, uh, Philip in Acts chapter 21 has four daughters who are called prophetesses. You've got prophets in the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Uh, you've got um, the disciples of John the Baptist who are unnamed in Acts 19 who prophesy. We don't have a single one of their prophetic utterances. You've got prophetic ministry in Rome, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. In Ephesus, Ephesians 4, uh, 7 through 11. Um, in Timothy's life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. These are just average, ordinary believers, male and female, young and old, who are enabled by the Spirit to prophesy. So the idea that somehow a prophet, um, you know, has to put on special clothing or, you know, carry a staff and say, thus saith the Lord and be held to this standard of absolute perfection or he's cast out in stone is simply misunderstanding what the New Testament says about how this gift operates. We just need to read the text and see what it says about how the gift of prophecy was to manifest itself in the local church. Yeah, that's good. And what about uh, the apostle? Yeah, that's a, here's the problem. I have two chapters in my book. The last two chapters in understanding spiritual gifts are on the issue of apostleship. First, we have to do something that's very challenging. Is apostleship a gift or an office, or is it both? If it's, um, let's just assume for the sake of argument that it's both. Certainly, I do believe that anyone who would serve among the 12 original foundational apostles had to have seen the risen Christ. That's clear from Acts chapter one. I don't believe that's a requirement for all those who would serve in an apostolic office. Um, you have too many apostles who are mentioned in the New Testament who could never have seen. They weren't even born. They weren't even living in the same land as Jesus. So they couldn't have seen him risen from the dead. Um, furthermore, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4 as if he expected apostles to function in every local church. So there had to have been a multiplicity of people who operated in this gifting slash office who had not seen the risen Christ. Um, now the question then becomes, what is the nature and the extent of their authority? That's a more challenging question. Uh, people fear that if we identify someone as apostolic, that we're kind of yielding over authority to them to dictate how our church should be run. Not at all. I don't think we should be any more concerned about the so-called authority of someone who might well be apostolic than we are concerned about elders in a church. I mean, I can say the same thing. What? Submit to your leaders? Um, does that give them unbridled authority to, to dictate the church in any way they see fit to your detriment? Well, of course not. So bottom line, I do think that the original 12, whose names are written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem, are settled and sealed. Nobody can be added to them. They had to have been eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. That's the, that's the criterion on which Matthias was chosen, is that he saw the risen Christ, and Peter made that clear. It has to be somebody who's been with us from the beginning, who's seen Jesus. I don't see that requirement being placed on every apostle. Uh, certainly Paul and Barnabas would have seen the risen Christ. We don't know if the other apostles did or didn't. So I think we need to be careful before we extend that requirement to everyone who operated in an apostolic office. So apostles today would probably be people who lead large movements and networks of churches, uh, who are church planters, who extend the gospel into unreached uh, areas of the earth, who um, who function in that way. And Again, you know, Paul himself said, 
I'm not an apostle to everybody. He said that to the Corinthians. Uh, he said, I don't want to step outside the boundaries that God has given me. So no church is obligated to submit to somebody who claims to be an apostle. That's the, If they think they can gain wisdom and insight from that kind of gifting, fine. If not, fine. So let's not overblow the so-called authority of an apostle should we discover that some still exist today. Mm, powerful. We're so thrilled to have Dr. Sam Storms with us, and we're going to have him back with us again in the next episode. We're going to continue this talk that uh, I think is very intriguing and enlightening and empowering, and we want you to join us in the next episode with Dr. Sam Storms. The Gary Wilkerson Podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting.